Welcome back. We are visiting next with James Wallner, a man that I knew a long time ago when he was one of the senior staff on Capitol Hill. He's gone on to other things, including now as a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and as a lecturer, Department of Political Science at Clemson University. He's a very accomplished Washington insider who has also contributed in, well, the spirit of, I guess, uh, public education as much as anything, uh, with a new uh, and very content-rich site entitled legislativeprocedure.com. Think of it as sort of an advanced uh, course in civics that all of us need. James, it's great to have you with us. Welcome. Happy New Year to you, sir. Well, thanks for having me. Happy New Year to you. And look, I don't think it was that long ago. You're making me feel quite old that I used to sit across the table from you in, in meetings and it, on Capitol Hill. So it, it seems like a lifetime ago, but it uh, does seem like a lifetime ago. Anyway, but still. It, it's good to reconnect with you. So um, what caught my eye was a piece that you wrote recently at uh, the great anchor uh, that was, a, I think, a corrective on some of the um, romanticizing that has been going on in the wake of the death of uh, former majority leader and Democratic leader, uh, Harry Reid. Um, your truth-telling was, uh, I think, very welcome. Remind us um, about Harry Reid, how he operated, and uh, his mark on the Senate, which, uh, well, I think continues to be felt today. Well, Harry Reid is someone who I've spent a long time um, observing my professional career in the Senate pretty much spanned the um, Reed's years as majority leader, um, a little bit as minority leader as well. But it was um, it was a time where I saw up close what Reed did to the Senate. And this piece I wrote after his death um, at the end of last year, I wrote it, it first appeared in Reason, um, and then I reposted it on my site, The Great Anchor. But it's real, to try to take a, a step back and to, to assess Reed as a, as a leader, not as not necessarily as someone whom you know for policy purposes or other things. And I don't agree with Harry Reid on policy, and I don't agree with what Harry Reid did to the Senate. But I wanted to try to get a sense of what he did as a leader and how that impacted the Senate to this day. And I think it was quite significant, and and I said so in the piece. And not to the good, I think it's fair to say. Um, describe the ways in which he impacted the Senate negatively, as you see it. So Reed did something that I think most leaders don't do. In fact, all leaders that I've studied or I've observed up close have never done, which is he changed how he led the Senate. He changed how he operated and behaved in response to events. And in doing so, he shut down the floor. So when Reed takes over as Democratic leader, you have an influx of liberal Democrats into the already liberal Democratic caucus that creates a challenge for Reed. You have a bunch of conservatives come to the Senate, people like uh, Mike Lee and, and Pat Toomey, and they're joining people that are already there like Jim DeMent. And they want to disrupt, just like the liberals, the status quo. They want to force votes on things. And so what Reed does, and cooperation with Mitch McConnell, incidentally, is that he shuts down the Senate floor. He shuts it down completely in a way that senators 20, 30, 40 years ago, much less 100 years ago, would have been aghast at. 
And he basically creates a process whereby he forces senators to choose between bills and their rights as senators to offer amendments. And more times than not, he was able to pass legislation, not all good legislation, but legislation with zero deliberation inside the Senate. Wow. And and why that's so important, of course, is that from its inception under the Constitution, the Senate was deemed to be uh, a deliberative body. Indeed, it was called uh, internationally the world's greatest deliberative body. So when you talk about shutting down the Senate, James Walner, you're talking about mutating the character of the institution really beyond recognition and in a way that um, rendered it incapable, would you say, of performing that vital task of really thinking through and and debating rigorously and, uh, well, serving as, I guess it was uh, said by the founders, uh, to serve as sort of a cooling saucer for uh, an often overheated uh, teacup that the House of Representatives represents. Sure. I would say unwilling, not unable. Because I think the senators, ultimately, they can do whatever they want. And and what made Reed so skillful was that he would set up a process whereby senators felt compelled to go along with him. The Senate has two jobs. That's to pass legislation and to, and to adjudicate the concerns of, of the American people and to deliberate. And those neither one's more important than the other. But the Senate actually has a third job, if you think about it, or those two jobs are done to a third end, and that is to check the house. We have bicameralism. The only purpose of bicameralism is to divide the legislative power so that it doesn't become too powerful and the majority doesn't rule. To check the house, it has to operate differently than the house. It can't operate in the same way, be accountable to the same people and impacted by the same events. Then it would not serve as much of a check. And throughout its history, the Senate has operated differently than the house. Increasingly, what you're seeing is the Senate operating just like the house. And in so doing, it becomes not a check, but a rubber stamp. And at that point, it's like, well, why do we have it? Right. I mean, it's kind of expensive to have two chambers. What's the point of two chambers if you don't have one that operates differently and deliberates and debates and brings in all the views of other people and has a process whereby losers and debates are reconciled to the outcomes? And maybe the winners realize they weren't all smart at the beginning and they learned something else along the way and the American people get to weigh in. And in the end, hopefully we get what Madison calls in Federalist 51, a system that points us in the direction of justice and the general good. Because when we do all agree, that's ultimately what we can agree on. James, the logical endpoint of the kinds of changes that you've talked about and, and their effect, specifically reducing the character and, and value of the Senate, is the end of the filibuster. And there is now, as you know, a concerted effort underway. The President of the United States specifically endorsed the idea yesterday in Georgia. And I want to talk to you in a minute about the rest of his speech. But just on this point, Chuck Schumer now seems to be bent on uh, ending the filibuster and uh, doing so in order to pass uh, these uh, voting rights acts, as they're called. What would the effect be on what's left of the unique character and vital role of the Senate were that to happen? 
I think it could be quite extraordinary. And to help your listeners understand, I think it's helpful to look at this from a slightly different perspective. The debate right now inside the Senate over its rules is not about minorities filibustering legislation, because we haven't had any filibusters, in my opinion. We've had two cloture votes, two cloture votes on October 18th and what, November 3rd or 4th uh, on two bills. That's it. And, and cloture, again, is uh, the cessation of filibusters uh, by, by the necessary majority. Correct. So when the Senate debates a bill, it has to first decide that it wants to debate that bill. This seems a little silly to people, but if you think about it, you're sitting around your kitchen table, you're trying to prioritize, you have your spouse and you're trying to say, well, what should we have for dinner tonight? Or what should we spend our money on? Or whatever else it may be, you have to first decide that, well, maybe let's go to Florida. But, or maybe let's go and let's put this money in our kids' college fund. But before you can decide on what you're going to do when you get to Florida or where they should go to you know, college, you've got to make a decision that we're going to debate this particular issue now. And that's what is called the motion to proceed. And the Senate has to decide what it's going to debate. It, and it makes sense to me. But once you get on that motion, that can be filibustered. The Senate then, to end debate, files cloture. And cloture, under its rules, requires 60 votes, typically. Now, what I find fascinating is that the Senate doesn't have to use cloture. And prior to 1917, the Senate didn't even have cloture, and it still was able to do a lot of really big stuff. And so the question is, how can the Senate work without cloture? And it's quite simple. You have plenty of other rules, and these are things that are they left out. You know, Harris accuses, Vice President Harris accuses the Republicans of exploiting arcane rules to prevent a debate on this bill. Biden says the Republicans are basically vetoing this bill. Well, there are no vetoes in the Senate. And what Harris leaves out is that those arcane rules also allow Democrats to begin debate on this bill if they want, and they choose not to. And I'm, I'm flabbergasted. It seems to me the only reason Democrats may not want to begin debate on a voting rights bill that they say is absolutely critical to safeguard our democracy and blame Republicans for stopping them is because they think that will play well in elections. Or maybe if I'm cynical, they don't really care all that much, right? But why on earth would it be that a senator would say, let's go the route of 60 votes when there are other rules on the books that allow us to do this in a perfectly lawful way with a simple majority? And the only answer I can come up with in addition to those is that they, they don't want to put in the hard work, what Biden called the hard work of democracy yesterday. Like they, they just don't want to do it. They don't want to sit on the floor and actually wait and force senators to talk. And so as you are watching this drama play out, uh, there seems to be a growing sense that Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer don't have the votes to uh, destroy the filibuster and and thereby further mutate the Senate, uh, that these uh, voting rights or election integrity uh, bills are, are not going, in fact, to get taken up. Um, how important would you say, as a serious student, as well as a longtime practitioner of, of the business of the legislative process, it is that those steps be um, foregone, if I can use that expression, that we, we not see this ultimate legacy, perhaps, of Harry Reid come to fruition? Well, going back to Harry Reid, something he did quite effectively, and people forget this, before the Senate first kind of nuked its filibuster uh, recently in 2013, was that he used the threat 
of eliminating the filibuster quite effectively to compel and coerce and persuade Republican senators to ultimately reverse their positions rather publicly and actually, you know, take an about face and vote for nominees and bills that that they previously pledged and not to support and actually voted against. And he did it quite effectively for several months heading into November of 2013 when Democrats eliminated the filibuster. And I think that's part of what Schumer's doing now and, and part of the reason why he may be willing to threaten this action, even though he may not necessarily have the votes. And also by setting it up in this way, he can isolate senators. So Senator Manchin, for instance, is the one of the, the problems that, he's, that he has, that he doesn't have his vote. Well, Manchin is also on the outs with his party on the Build Back Better Act. I think his party is very frustrated with him in several ways. His constituents may not be, but his party is. And so individuals, people and human beings don't like to be isolated from their colleagues. And now Schumer set up a situation where Manchin's going to be um, the, you know, one of the very few people that are opposing his party on on this issue as well. And so by setting up this the situation, and this is something Reid did very effectively, um, Schumer is basically pressuring both Republicans and Manchin to go along with him, all by, you know, to avoid this threat of what he's going to do. But if they do that, if they go along with him, they've actually rendered the filibuster rather meaningless at that point. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that they'd gotten rid of the filibuster before. Um, I, I think that that's what they were calling a carve out, as I recall, was it not, for certain um, purposes. And how does that work? That's sort of what some people are suggesting they should do in this case as well with the election issue. The Constitution empowers a majority of the Senate to determine how it wants to conduct its proceedings. There's no doubt about that. The question is whether the Senate ought to break its rules or ignore its rules or otherwise circumvent its rules without complying with those rules. And that's where I think I, you know, that's where I draw the line as a parent, anybody who has young kids or can remember when they had young kids, you can't start making exceptions to the rules. The rule is either the rule or it's not the rule. And if you don't like the rule, then you should change the rule. And most recently, Republic, I mean, Republicans and Democrats, for that matter, created a carve out for the debt limit increase and for debt limit legislation. This was just last month. They've done it for Supreme Court nominees. They've done it for uh, regular presidential nominees to the judiciary, for executive branch nominees. And every time you ignore the rules, and if you, your listeners go to the Senate rule book, the rule still says it takes 60 votes to win debate on a Supreme Court nominee. It's right there. It's written down. I thought we were a country of the rule of law. And that's a Senate rule. And the Senate hasn't even bothered to rewrite it. I mean, think about that for a second. The Senate hasn't even bothered to rewrite its rules. It just ignores them. What is, I mean, that that's the kind of place that we have spent a, you know, hundreds of years, you know, trying to defend freedom and democracy from, <laughs> you know, but here we are, it's like, well, in the name of it, the, we're going to get rule just, of just, law. you know, this rule of law thing is, is quaint. I say this is important and we're just yeah. going to ignore it. Well, where does that yeah. end? I, I'm, I, I'm with you on its importance and that it should end right here rather than, uh, you know, continuing further down this uh, very, very troubling path. Um, let me ask you quickly, and we've only got two minutes left, James, but I, I did want to ask you um, about your thoughts more generally about Joe Biden's speech in um, Georgia yesterday, uh, and in particular, his vow to uh, defeat domestic enemies, as he put it. I, I find this very concerning. 
there is, look, I worked in the Capitol. I met my wife there. I went to meetings with you there. It is a very special and sacred place to me. And I was horrified by watching people vandalize it on January 6th. I just want to come out and say it. But there is a difference. And those people are being prosecuted by the law. There is a difference between what is happening in state legislatures around the country. There is a difference between senators exercising their rights under the Senate rules and the Constitution to adjudicate the concerns of their constituents and a lawless act. And what Biden has done, what Democrats have done, is they've equated those two things. Biden says that, and I find it very ironic, that Biden talks about how sacred it is that a simple majority be able to decide whatever it wants, even if the rules say otherwise. And then, and talks about safeguarding our democracy under the Constitution, and then turns around and demonizes state legislatures that are empowered under the Constitution to regulate our elections. And they're doing it with a simple majority vote. Isn't that interesting? Like, and so at that point, it's like, well, which one is it? And then you begin to think, well, maybe it has nothing to do with the Constitution. And maybe it has nothing to do with safeguarding our democracy. And maybe it has everything to do with rhetoric designed to delegitimize our opponents so that we can win this debate without actually engaging in the, in Biden's words, hard work of democracy to win that debate, to persuade our fellow Americans that our way is the best way. And, and perhaps even worse, not just to delegitimate, but to actually take action against in ways that would uh, punish or, or perhaps, uh, you know, incarcerate people who happen to be afoul of that, uh, uh, that rule. It, it's just, uh, it, it's just extremely I mean, when you, you com- say, and I hope we can. Yeah. I mean, when it. you, and I grew up in the South, I've, I've you know, I've, I'm a long time, I'm a, I'm a Southerner, but when you compare someone be they from the South or anywhere else in the Senate who votes against cloture on a motion to proceed, which Biden did plenty of times, to George Wallace and Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis. I mean, come on. That's just, that is not a serious statement. You can disagree with their opposition to the voting rights bill, but this is not the same thing. And anybody who thinks a senator voting against the motion to proceed on debate is the same thing as turning fire hoses on American citizens, children and women and men who are out trying to win the rights that everybody else has, that is just absolutely absurd. And that tells me that he is not interested, not interested in actually having the debate that he was calling on the Senate to have. He doesn't want a debate that has an outcome that he doesn't want, that's for sure. And that hopefully is where this is headed. Um, James Wolner, thank you so much uh, for this uh, short course on civics and the United States Senate and the important role that it plays and must continue to play with due respect, as you say, for the rights of the minority. God bless you, my friend. We'll look forward to visiting often, I hope, in 2022. And thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Next up, we will speaking with uh, somebody else right after this.